I'm very nervous about how the Third Circuit is interacting with the FCC and willing to accept their continued lollygagging on this issue. I think we're going to see a rather apocalyptic answer to this, where the court is literally going to chuck the entire scheme out. And I don't, I, I can't even imagine what the possible implications for that are, but I can tell you they won't be good. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reesmanel, and I am one half of your hosting and production team. Hello, I'm Eric Klein. I'm the other half. And on today's show, it's the FCC. Well, the FCC is not going to be here. (laughs) Darn it. (laughs) But uh, we're going to be talking about the FCC because of a very important court of appeals decision that happened about two weeks ago now. Uh, and it's it's a it's a case we've been covering. We've been we've been following here on the podcast. We've been following at RadioSurvivor.com, but which you almost don't read about anywhere else. It's not being covered in the New York it Times. It's not being covered, and so we are so thrilled that we are friends with Dr. Christopher Terry. He is uh, now an incoming assistant professor of media law and ethics at the University of Minnesota. He's been on before to talk about uh, the the 20th anniversary of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, about media consolidation, and about this case that got that just had another decision, Prometheus v. FCC. Right. So he'll explain why this case matters. Why, why just in case you're not as uh, nerdy about the Federal Communications Commission as we here at Radio Survivor are, maybe, maybe we can pull you over to the to the wonk side of, of the FCC. Uh, Chris really breaks it down and he yeah, makes it, it very easy to understand. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. It's in just a minute or two. We'll get to that. And then we'll also be hearing from Jennifer Waits, our right. uh, college radio correspondent. Yeah, Jennifer took a tour of the uh, WCUA, Catholic University of America at Washington, D.C. They have uh, what amounts to the most humble of all possible college radio stations. Uh, and, you know, maybe Jennifer, if she was here at the introduction, would correct me on that. There's probably uh, even more humble radio I'm stations. I'm sure there is. But we, they're an online. Just hasn't toured yet. They're, they're, they have a. But, but what's fascinating about them and why I enjoyed the talking Jennifer about it is they have decades and decades and decades of history, but uh, the station manager who gave her that tour uh, never met the person who had the job before him. He It was up to that young man, that student at the university to restart the station, uh, to try to, to try to fire up the equipment once again and get the online station hmm. back on the air. And yet decades and decades and decades of history at that station. So, uh, what an interesting contrast. So that's yeah. what, that's what we'll hear from Jennifer about, uh, later on in the show after Christopher Terry. That is great. I'm looking forward to hearing it. I haven't, I have not yet uh, heard it myself. And uh, right here at the top, I just want to say, look, uh, we'd love to hear from you if you have any comments about the show, about anything you hear. Um, also, if you ever want to write for Radio Survivor, we've actually recently published a few uh, guest pieces. You know, and once people publish a couple of guest pieces, you're a writer, man. You're part of the Radio Survivor family. Uh, we published uh, now a series from uh, Fred Crock is his name. He was a radio engineer, but also on-air talent. Uh, and he worked in commercial radio in San Francisco and in, in New York. And he wrote this wonderful series on his recollections of radio in the early 1950s, specifically in the Bay Area. Huh. 
And um, he went to Stanford University. So he was involved with Stanford's uh, radio station then when it was Carrier Current AM, which means uh, it was only heard on campus and it was carried, you know, basically through wires or through the uh, the uh, plumbing or, or electrical uh, wiring of the campus. So it would broadcast for like 100 feet away from anything that was carrying the signal. And it was quite an operation. So I, 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 people should definitely check that out. Um, and we've also been carrying uh, some new pieces about the state of various uh, radio in Europe. Um, which is, I think it's really good for, for folks here in the U S to understand how the regulation of things like AM radio or, uh, which, which is really on the decline in Europe, steep, steep decline. Um, as well as other bands like long wave radio, which we've never had as a regular service here in the U S. So we're trying to like, you know, and these are all from folks who, 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 who dialed us up. You know, and said, "Hey, I've I've got something I'd love to share, and we we love to have that. You know, it's great to celebrate all these different types of radio, and it and it's good for folks to understand. It's there's a broader world out there uh, beyond our shores, uh, as well as uh, this this great rich history in the way that radio has been practiced and been part of communities. So, drop us a line, send us send it to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. and um." You know, just go to RadioSurvivor.com and read some of the stuff. <laughs> We'd love for you to do that if you're not already uh, a regular reader. And uh, you can have this uh, delivered to your inbox. Each week we have uh, the Radio Survivor Bulletin. It's a free weekly newsletter uh, which uh, keeps you up to date with what's going on at Radio Survivor and all these different stories. As well, uh, sometimes we include extra stories, a little extra something in the bulletin. And you can sign up for that. It's absolutely free and we'll never share or sell your email address. It's not a marketing newsletter. It is something which uh, we do for the benefit of our readers. So go for to radiosurvivor.com. Because we care about the sound of strong communities. We do. We care about the sound of strong communities. Um, and, you know, we'd love it if you would go and rate the podcast, give it a review on iTunes. And and if you use iTunes to manage your podcast, so if you would subscribe through iTunes, that's great. Uh, it just gives us a little bit extra magic in the iTunes store and helps people discover the show and we hope then therefore discover the sound of strong communities um, with that let's hear let's hear from Dr. Christopher Terry so on the line with us from Wisconsin is Dr. Christopher Terry and he is about to be an assistant professor of law and ethics at the University of Minnesota. Uh, previously, he uh, taught – you taught uh, journalism and, uh, and communication at the University of Wisconsin and Milwaukee. Isn't that correct, Chris? That's correct. And uh, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for taking time out from your, your move <laughs> yeah. to, to, to talk to Radio Survivor. And so you're Good here time. because um, – well, is, there was a big decision – that happened in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals that regards the FCC, and nobody's talking about it except you, Chris. <laughs> and it's it's and it's a big deal, uh, and so it's really important uh, for people to hear about this decision, which re- which regards uh, media ownership and consolidation. And so uh, we're so glad that you can be here to help untangle and help people understand. And and what's interesting here is that uh, it seems like not only did um, the FCC come out on, on kind of the losing end of this, but it seems like uh, 
they pissed off the court. They pissed off the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Isn't that about right? I think that's a accurate description, honestly, of what's <laughs> happened here. This is the third time, essentially, the same issue has been in front of the Third Circuit. So to refresh ourselves on how we got here, in 2003, in June of 2003, Michael Powell's FCC released a new method for calculating media ownership rules called the Diversity Index. It was a mathematical mess based on game theory that essentially allowed six equal competitors to exist in a market. It was preposterous, and there were multiple legal challenges filed to it at the time. Through a multi-district panel, the case ends up in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which was really bad for the FCC at the very beginning because the Third Circuit Court of Appeals hates the FCC uh, in great fashion. And in the first case, which came down in 2004, the first decision essentially said that the FCC needed to have some evidence to support the policy it was trying to put into place, which, of course, it didn't have. And it remanded much of the entire structure of media ownership rules back to the FCC. Fast forward a few years, Kevin Martin is now chairman of the FCC, and we went through the same process again. The case goes back to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals on a new set of media ownership rules that Kevin Martin's FCC tried to put into place, and the commission remanded the decision back to the agency again, essentially on exactly the same grounds. You need evidence to support this policy that you're trying to implement. Because wasn't I remember this conversation we had this in the past at Radio Survivor About a year ago? Yeah, and sure. what, this is the conclusion I came to is that this was Michael Powell's FCC, which was um, right uh, the middle of the Bush administration, but but near the second the second half of this Bush administration FCC, and the idea was more media consolidation was. Um, was 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 what the plan was even greater media consolidation and Michael Powell came up with this uh, strange way to justify it uh, by saying that uh, uh, stations would get more diverse if there was more consolidation. They didn't really care anything more about diversity at that point. They had sort of given up on even the pretext of pretending that that was an important part of the structure. And what they did was they came up with a mathematical formula. They didn't put it out for any sort of public testing. There was a variety of just logical flaws with it. And the Third Circuit Court of Appeals tore the FCC limb from limb in 2004. Because and there was a challenge. There was, there was many challenges to it. Many, many groups challenged it. But the lead group becomes Prometheus Radio Project. They were the group that filed in the Third Circuit the case was lotteried to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. So Prometheus Radio Project became the lead plaintiff. And there was a group of people, it's essentially a three-sided case. You have the FCC on one side, and then you have two groups telling the FCC they're doing a bad job. You have the deregulatory petitioners, that's the NAB, variety of media companies who'd like to consolidate more. But then you also have sort of a citizens group headed up by Prometheus and some of the others, Mark Cooper's groups and all those things. And essentially, the deregulatory and the citizen petitioners agree on one thing. The FCC is doing a bad job. Now, the deregulatory petitioners want more deregulation. The citizen petitioners want less, and they actually like to see things rolled back a little bit. But in real terms, what you have is two groups attacking the FCC on essentially the same grounds. 
you can't support the decision. Now, they both want different outcomes. Wow. So what's the news? What, what changed uh, very recently? Well, what happened is, is that the FCC essentially has continued to punt on doing what the court has ordered it not once but twice to do in the remands. When an agency gets a remand from a court, the court tells them what they're supposed to do, and then they have to essentially go through another period of judicial review. This case, the third Prometheus case, which was decided about a week and a half ago now, was the third time that the FCC has been up. And it was, it was almost like deja vu. The citizen petitioners were attacking the FCC for not having evidence, not supporting minority and women owners of uh, broadcast properties. The deregulatory petitioners were attacking the FCC's media ownership scheme, saying they haven't supported any of these things with evidence as they're required to do under law for going on 10 years now. And more importantly, what was really interesting in the oral arguments, which took place just in April, middle of April, was how the panel of judges on the Third Circuit, led by Judge Ambrose, have dealt with the FCC this time. About half of the oral argument includes the three judges on the panel asking the FCC, how much longer is this going to take? How much longer is this going to take? You keep telling us you're going to get it done. How much longer? How much longer? Why are we still here? And they were obviously pissed off. Yeah, I mean, I mean this is crazy any- because it's it's the end of the Obama administration, and we're talking about something that was try- that they tried to implement in the middle of the Bush administration. Yeah, we're talking— 13 I mean, years. 13 years in real terms that the FCC has been kind of paralyzed on this. And the reason that they're paralyzed on it is what they did between 1996 and 2005 is undefendable empirically. Mm. It reduced the number of owners. It reduced the diversity in media. It also raised advertising rates and reduced competition. There is not one thing that the agency can point to that the media ownership rules, which were launched into by the 1996 Telecommunication Act, have done that's positive. I mean, there's just no empirical data to support that. And they've tried to use economic theory and a variety of economic studies to try and make it look like there's something good. But remember, the the evidence is so overwhelmingly against what the FCC has done in the last 20 years that the FCC had to lose evidence that it itself had generated at taxpayer expense that clearly demonstrated what they were doing was wrong. And they find themselves in a rock and a hard place now that they can't support what they're doing. Wait, what evidence Why did that? they lose? What's that? Which which evidence did they lose? There's two studies, one on radio and one on television, that ended up in a locked drawer that actually came out. They were created during the 2002 quadriennial or at that time biennial review. And they had evidence that said what the FCC had done between 96 and 2002 had messed up the media ownership structure. Chairman Powell ordered the copies of them destroyed, and copies of them surfaced when Kevin Martin was undergoing his Senate confirmation hearings. And that's been the story of this. But what really matters now, where we are today, is what the Third Circuit has said to the FCC. Because of an obscure provision in the 1996 Telecommunications Act, it's Section 202H, it's a short paragraph. But that paragraph requires that the FCC essentially develop evidence to support any rule, not only that it wants to undertake, but that it also wants to keep. It's sort of unique in administrative law in that an agency has to have enough evidence to support the existing policy. That's not how this typically works. But what the Third Circuit Court of Appeals said to the FCC about 
15 days ago now, is that we're almost at the point where we're going to declare the entire media ownership rule structure invalid. Hmm. And that is an apocalyptic weapon in the broadcast industry. Because if you follow it to its logical conclusion, that would mean that the FCC does not have the authority to license individual owners to use broadcast spectrum anymore. And anyone who's a student of radio history knows we tried this once back in the 1920s, and it didn't work out so hot for us. Right. In that competing signals were literally knocking everyone off the air. And in cities as big as Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago, so many competitors, unlicensed competitors, were going up against the people who had uh, broadcast frequencies assigned to them that you couldn't get any signals. And that is the logical outcome if the FCC doesn't act. But the only action the FCC has at this point is essentially to admit that the last 20 years of media ownership policy has been an abject failure and that they need to reverse course. Hmm. And there's no way Tom Wheeler's competition-based philosophy is going to allow for that to occur. So this is interesting to me, right? Um, in part because we have right, we have two different, very different administrations, right, who, who have been at the FCC piloting this ship, right? On the one hand, you have the, the sort of radically deregulatory impulses of Michael Powell, followed by the the less radical or at least uh, rough edges sanded off version under uh, Kevin Martin, the second FCC chairman under, under George W. Bush. And then we go to the Obama FCC, Julius Janikowski followed by Tom Wheeler. Uh, you know, again, these are not, these are free market guys, right? I mean, you know, no one gets to be chairman of the FCC these days spouting anti-free market or or criticizing the free market, but, but ostensibly softer, more liberal, uh, you know, chairman who, who have, uh, and in particular, Tom Wheeler, uh, taken some sort of brave stands recently, uh, in particular with regard to uh, network neutrality. Uh, in fact, reverse course in a lot of ways to take a much more uh, a stronger stance on network neutrality and, and, and the protection of the public interest. And yet through all of this, they all are holding the line on, on this, on this per- nearly preposterous uh, regulatory regime, right? This idea of this diversity index, this game theory based way of calculating and justifying diversity of consolidated industries. And, and, if, and please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. Uh, my understanding of, of that diversity index is that it tries to sort of take into account sort of all sorts of mass media, so not limited to broadcast and print. Is, 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 that, a, is that a rough, roughly correct characterization? Yeah, but you're not giving it the proper credit. In, in the diversity, and I mean, just how preposterous it was. Okay. In the diversity, in the diversity index, let's say here in Milwaukee we have Channel Twelve, WISN TV is Channel Twelve. It's the ABC affiliate. The owners of Channel Twelve would get credit for having Channel Twelve, but they would also get credit for having uh, Channel Twelve's website. And under the six competitor theory. Those would count as two of the competitors. So you would have Channel 12 and Channel 12's website, which are essentially the same exact content owned by the same owner, but they would count as two of the potential sources for media. 
So then you incorporate any local news websites or anything, and you can allow consolidation as long as you can produce six competitors, not equal competitors, mind you, six competitors in the market. What about a, what about a newsletter zine? <laughs> would, would have counted under the system. So, now, so what you're saying is that if I have a Starbucks at a drive-thru and across the street is a Starbucks, it's only a walk-up counter, that would count as two competing coffee shops. Absolutely. Actually, the walk-up counter at the first Starbucks would have counted. So it would be three. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, I mean, that's not hyperbole either. And that's the sad part of this story is that – this diversity index that they tried to push on us in 2003 was so illogical that a community college television station in the city of New York counted for less than ownership of the New York Times under the formula huh. that it uses. And they've never really abandoned it. They, I mean, they had it remanded to them all, essentially as being arbitrary and capricious, but they've never come up with anything else since. And where the Third Circuit is really taking it to the FCC, and I think rightfully so as we sit here in 2016, is on the issue of minority and women owners in broadcasting. Um, as you both know, during the wave of consolidation, which followed in 96 and kind of wrapped up in 2005, minority owners, racial and ethnic minorities, and ownership of broadcast stations by women dropped dramatically. I mean, African-Americans don't control a single broadcast station in the United States anymore, broadcast television station anyway, and women control less than 6% of all broadcast properties in the U.S. at this point, and that's based on some shoddy FCC numbers at best. And that's down from what was happening uh, prior to Prior to 96, yes, absolutely. Backwards. And we went backwards. We went backwards, and that's the logical outcome. All these mom-and-pop operations, these little independent operators – they saw the writing on the wall. They knew they weren't going to be able to compete with a group that had eight stations in a town. They sold out. And it was the logical, logical outcome there. But where this really comes down to is that the FCC has to come up with a plan to fix that part of the problem or the remand will never be answered. The second Prometheus case, the one we talked about last year about this time, made it very clear to the FCC that this wasn't going to go anywhere until they came up with a plan for minority ownership. And the FCC has literally whined in court that it's hard to do. I mean, they're in oral arguments five years ago, they, weren't, they were whining to the judges on the Third Circuit that this was really hard to do, come up with some sort of uh, First Amendment scrutiny plan that would meet uh, the objectives here. And they said an oral argument this time back in April that they had, you know, they had some ideas, but they couldn't get any of them to fly. And the Third Circuit doesn't have any more patience for this. And my real concern is, is as bad as the media ownership scheme is now, as bad as that policy has been for the last literally 20 years, I'm very nervous about how the Third Circuit is interacting with the FCC and willing to accept their continued lollygagging on this issue. Hmm. I think we're going to see a rather apocalyptic answer to this, where the court is literally going to chuck the entire scheme out. And I don't, I, I can't even imagine what the possible implications for that are, but I can tell you they won't be good. Why, why wouldn't they be good? Because, I mean, why, why wouldn't things just go back to the way they were? Well, um, Congress. <laughs> yeah. Congress would have to get involved with that. Yeah, uh, 1996, I mean, that was not an FCC decision. That's right. That no, was law. So that's – I wanted to get a little bit political now because the FCC 
if uh, you guys can walk me back from this statement, but the FCC is controlled by the executive branch. You know, the president appoints the chair and the and that's how the majority of the of the board is controlled. It comes from the uh, it comes from the party. It comes from the administration that controls the White House. And so uh, I want I'm like kind of rubbing my hands together because I've been trying to get political on Radio Survivor about the FCC uh, from the get go. Since last year, I was thinking about this, like, how is this presidential election you're going to change the FCC of all things. I'm, I'm sure it's at the uh, it's the forefront of everyone's mind is uh, the the uh, Trump FCC versus the Clinton FCC. But but it, it it matters. It really and so is it possible? First of all, the first thing I'm wondering is was there really 13 years of weird, stupid stalemate because the Obama FCC was uh was reluctant to roll back the the sort of leadership that had been put in place by the bush fcc may i say that okay well that's a well that's a loaded hypothetical i did just uh, load it up yeah let's let's start with the current election and then we'll walk it backwards from that because that seems to be the logical way to answer your question (laughs) the simple answer to your question is we know what a clinton fcc would look like it would be the same type of fcc that brought us the 1996 telecommunications act that was a Clinton-era FCC, and I don't see radical difference between Clinton and her husband. Trump FCC, I don't have any idea. I can't predict anything on that. Um, Nobody I, knows. I will, I will point this out as someone who teaches media law. He makes me very nervous in the way he reacts to things in the press, making odd suggestions that um, – you know, maybe we should do away with some of our libel protections and such some such things. So I would be very nervous about having Trump in there. Ironically, I'd probably prefer Gary Johnson. At least we know we, exactly what we would get out of that guy. What's Gary Johnson? Oh, oh, the Libertarian, libertarian FCC. I, yeah, I actually burn it all down, which might not be the worst thing at, the, at this point. But to answer your other part of your question, I think you're operating from a false premise. The Bush administration took over from the Clinton administration. And remember, most of the radio consolidation happened between 98 and 2002. That's when things were really crazy. That's when I was in the industry. I worked for six companies for in, you know, the span of five paychecks at one point. You know, that, that's when that was happening. What happened when Bush appointees took over the commission is they just continued it to its logical conclusion regulating for competition instead of caring anything about viewpoint diversity or ownership diversity or anything, but just trying to make companies more money. That was their sort of chief motivation, at least when Powell was chair. And then when Kevin Martin becomes chair, he's much more of a policy wonky, Harry Potter looking um, sort of uh, incrementalist. And, you know, he wanted to make the same kinds of moves, but he recognized that what Michael Powell had tried to do as chair was sort of an overreach. He wanted to do things a little, you know, take little bites out of these things at a time and and approach it that way. But then you get to the Obama administration and you end up with Julius Janikowski. Well, Julius Janikowski was the chief of staff for Reed Hunt, the man who was at the FCC when they implemented the 1996 Telecommunications Act. You need to get rid of the economists if you want to fix this problem. Mm, it's been, it's been consistent the, for for a generation then. Yeah, it, you're, you're talking literally, I mean, as we sit here today and discuss this, we're talking about a 20-year legacy of failure 
that rides back to the idea that we can regulate media on economic theory. It's a false premise. It's something I've written <laughs> greatly about. And here we are. I mean, the, the empirical data on it is undeniable. If you look at what the radio industry looked like in 96 and you look at what it looks like today, the empirical data is undeniable. Economic theory doesn't work for media regulation, period, end of story. And if you want to fix this problem, the next person, whether that be Trump, Clinton, Johnson, Jill Stein, the World Workers Socialist Party candidate, whoever that happens to be this time, you need to not appoint an economist to the chair of the commission. You need an administrative expert, lawyer, you know, somebody who's worked in the administrative realm, sort of the James Lawrence fly of 2016, if you will, and have someone like that in there to lead the commission for a change. Because can, wait, can you tell us who that reference was? James Lawrence Fly was a New Deal appointee to the FCC, and he didn't take any guff. In fact, he, his <laughs> battles with uh, Justin Miller, who was head of the NAB at the time, are legendary for their rhetorical style. But, I mean, he was, he was an old-school administrative agency lawyer who took over the commission, and he did things by the book, step by step, you know, but didn't take any sort of of the iron triangle approach to, you know, corporate influence on the dis- policymaking process. He, his objective was essentially public service, interest, convenience, and necessity. And he led the commission to regulate on that scheme. And, 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 he was and very that phrase that you, that, you just, that you just spit out real quickly, that comes right out of the, you know, the, the original Telecommunications Act, which authorizes the FCC. <laughs> that is yeah. the exact phrase of what the Public FCC's mission is. Would you say, say that it, again? Say it again. Public interest, convenience, and necessity. That, that's what the FCC is public, supposed to serve. Public interest, public interest convenience, and necessity. And necessity. That's what the media is supposed to be. That's what the FCC is supposed to – those are the goals for which the FCC is supposed to regulate everything that falls under its purview. I just right. – I, I want you, you went through that, but I think it's so important to go back and sort of like first principles here to highlight that. What we don't hear in there is 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 profit. I mean – and I'm not against – like profitable radio stations, by the way. I'm not against profitable newspapers. I'm not against profitable uh, uh, cable television stations. I think I think in, in our economic system as exists, that's fine. I would like to see radio stations be healthy and commercial radio stations make money they need. Uh, but but it's not not at the expense of these things. <laughs> well, what's really funny is that you mentioned it just that way. Let's take that as our empirical standard, because that is really sort of the driving force. Let's allow these companies to make use of economy of scale. We'll consolidate these stations. They'll make more money, and we'll get a better service out of it. That was essentially the general theory. Now, it was preposterous. That was the argument. Yeah, yeah. That was the argument, right? But look at where we are with the state of these media companies today that were created by this consolidation. Look at Clear Channel today, or iHeartMedia as it is as I heart my stock price is under a dollar again. Um, you know, that company was created on the idea that the more consolidation we allow for, the better service we're going to get. And economically, they couldn't make it work. They ran up so much debt, they can't even afford to pay off their bonds. Right. Well, their in, stock is essentially worthless. In case people point. who are listening to this interview uh, haven't been listening to Radio Survivor uh, all year long, we've talked about in uh, numerous times about how that, uh, that consolidation wave uh, and profitability crested, and now we're, we're seeing the, 
Endgame. Yeah, Cumulus, the number two uh, broadcaster, right. its stock is in even worse shape. I think, and one thing I'd like to sort of say here is that if we, so you sort of said it's like, it was like a hypothesis, right? It's a hypothesis that was offered in, in support of radical ownership deregulation, especially of radio in 1996. Um, and, and so what we can, we can almost say the last 20 years have been an experiment. The hypothesis was if we uh, get rid of all national ownership rules, if we greatly raise the limits on how many stations you can own in one market, then what will happen is it will be an economy of scale in which uh, uh, owners will be able to take advantage of the combination of stations to, uh, to make things more efficient, cut costs, and therefore be able to provide better service while also bumping up profits. And if we take a scientist's view of this and we look at it 20 years on, we, we can say, well, the experiment – it's not the experiment failed. It's that the results were not as hypothesized. What we instead see is that uh, we got consolidation. Uh, but once they were able to – after several years of profit maximization, profits cratered. Short, as service went down. Gain. They were short-term gain. It's sort of like saying it, it killed the virus and then killed the patient, right? Like you know, you might say, "Oh, the cure, it, it you know, it killed the virus," but then uh, and then seven days later, the patient died, right? Well, that, that's sort of what what happened here, and 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 it and you know, there's no other way of seeing it. I think that's what you're that's what you're arguing there, Chris, right? Well, I think the empirical data speaks for itself. I mean, the companies that were created by this, you mentioned Cumulus, that was going to be the next one I was going to mention. They're failing companies at this point, right? I mean, then, so yeah, the hypothesis wasn't proven. I would go so far as to call it a failure. I've called it that very publicly. I yeah. call this entire scheme, which has been foisted upon us over the last 20 years, a legacy of failure. And yet, it's going to be the title of the book I write on this someday. <laughs> right. Well, that. I'm looking forward to that. And and not and the thing I do want to say is not every radio station is failing. Not every commercial no. radio station is failing. Not even every commercial radio group is failing. There are some smaller, successful commercial radio groups that are that are turning profits. It is not a a strictly failing sector. However, we if we if we look at the ones that are the biggest failures, they also happen to be the biggest companies uh, that went through the greatest amount of consolidation. There's a whole lot less uh, local reporting, even in the biggest media markets. Right. In the as, country. as we talked about KGO in, yeah. in San Francisco, a, a cumulus station. If you can't make a profit reporting the news in San Francisco. So, so Chris, so what, what, I guess it is my mind boggles at this, as I'm sure yours does, is that, you know, in year 13 now of this of this uh, uh, particular regime uh, uh, for evaluating uh, the markets of, of our media markets uh, going back and forth from the um, – with the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, I mean my question to you is and, – and this is a hard question – is I mean what – can the FCC do like what, what? What is the way out of this? I mean, and 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 the thing is, is that especially because as, as Eric points out, it's an election year, uh, so in, in it is very possibly a lame duck FCC uh, that that could find it, you know itself replaced, you know, in 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 just uh, another seven months. Uh, I mean, what can they do? How can they, how can they write themselves out of this, this predicament? 
Well, I think you're asking the wrong question. I think the question you need to ask is, what will they do? <laughs> and it's very clear that they're going to try and run out the clock. Right, but that's why I wanted to ask, what could they do? Well, what <laughs> could they do is that they need to sit down, take a deep breath, and really launch into an actual empirical study of media's, the status of media today. And there was some word about doing this a while back, you may remember all those people in Congress went off liberty gibbet that Congress was going to look at how newsrooms were, op- or the FCC was going to look at how newsrooms were operated. Right. Preposterous outrage over that. But that's really where the FCC needs to come in. Administrative agencies exist to develop evidence to enforce regulatory law. And what the FCC really needs now is some evidence. And I think that the evidence is out there. You just made mention of it. Local and sort of regional radio groups are actually doing pretty well right now because they've sort of returned to what radio's roots are, kind of a connection with the local audience, local news, local weather, local sports. You know, the things that made radio a powerful medium for decades are the things that the people in those smaller groups that are making money today are still doing. And they need to look at that and recognize that that's the model that they need to implement. There's nothing wrong with consolidation per se. It's the level of consolidation that causes the the problems that we've had. And they need to develop a set of evidence, and then they need to complete the rulemakings that they've essentially just tried to run out the clock on. 2010, 2014, which is in progress, and get ready for 2018, when there'll be a new quadrennial review released. And essentially admit at that point that what they tried for 20 years didn't work. We need to come up with a new scheme. We need to develop evidence to support that new scheme and move forward that way. The problem is I just don't think they're going to have the time to do that. I think mm-hmm. the Third Circuit is going to give them till the end of the year, and that's it. And, I mean, they were mad. You can't listen to that oral argument and not hear it in their voice. I mean, the, the Judge Soraka was essentially saying, why are we still talking about this at one point? And I, I can't help but to agree with the Third Circuit on that point. We should have been done with this a decade ago. Is there any way that uh, this could get bumped up to the Supreme Court? I don't think so as things stand. The current decision would never get cert at the Supreme Court because it's a straightforward remand to the agency with a timeline attached to it, essentially what the petitioners were asking for, you know, do something. The FCC said an oral argument that they expect to circulate, although that means internally, so we can't see it, at least a conclusion to the ongoing media ownership proceeding that they're going, which is a two-fisted quadriennial review by the end of this month. I doubt that will actually happen. If it did, as the lawyer suggested that it might, um, you might see some action on this right towards the end of the year. But as you pointed out, with the administration's flipping, who knows what could happen at that point. Mm -hmm. The next administration could come in, new FCC chairman, who's not quite as accommodating to citizen comments as Wheeler has been the last two years. And we could be sitting here talking about this again in January, just like we're talking about it now. I um, I, I have one more piece of Pollyannish. Uh, uh, I want to I want to throw in this idea that um, we don't have that next FCC yet. Um, what what are the what are the mechanisms and or the chances of uh, people uh, people who care about this kind of thing 
uh, trying to exercise a little bit of power to get uh, the right kind of person in charge of the FCC. Like, that's not a thing that happens ever before, right? I mean, usually it's it's someone who's very, very, very friendly to industry. Well, it's certainly been like that for the last 30 years. Yeah. Um, I mean, mean, we we haven't mentioned Bernie Sanders' FCC. (laughs) Well, Bernie Sanders' FCC would probably be headed by me, and that would be terrible. But uh, (laughs) um, the the real thing is we need to get rid of the economists and and get back to some social science evidence that says what these policies are going. I mean, what we're talking about here is a remains a major information source for people in this country. It's not an insignificant thing that it's so messed up. I guess I'm thinking it, about I'm thinking about the the kind of uh victories that were won recently with the um net neutrality when all of a sudden out of nowhere it appeared uh citizens groups and and uh people online sort of stood up against the the policy that that was uh was the was the given was the um the the consensus there that you know you know like uh, people actually uh, changed the story well ironically part of the reason that they were able to put that pressure on the FCC was because of media ownership one of the things that happens in the original Prometheus case is you have 2 million public comments in the record that the FCC just absolutely ignored. We talked about this last time we talked. And when it came to net neutrality, there were 4 million comments in there in support of net neutrality. Wheeler didn't want to do what he did. He didn't have any choice. They could have lost simply on procedure on net neutrality based on the fact that they had ignored those 4 million comments. The FCC learned its lesson on net neutrality from media ownership. It's undeniable. Public comments count in the record, and the volume of them has counted heavily when it comes to issues like this. So if there is a legacy of this, if it does, if the Third Circuit does burn it all down, at least that we have a mechanism to influence the FCC, and that's to organize citizens to put pressure on them for policies that favor citizens over the corporations here. And so and that I, might be that might be the legacy of media ownership policy in this country. And if I if I can take a take a uh, uh, an opportunity to sort of update your question, Eric. So I think maybe the question might be then, is there, will there be an opportunity? Is there an opportunity for that kind of organizing to happen around media ownership again? Is there a proceeding? Will there be a, 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 this sort of ripe, op- you know, opening of the door to try and generate that level of public comment again around this particular issue is that is that forthcoming is it is it on the horizon and, and is it even possible i think the only reason we haven't had it is that the fcc really hasn't done anything on media <laughs> ownership literally in 5 years yeah. i mean they haven't they haven't done anything they haven't released anything that would have fundamentally organized people. So there's nothing to comment on, right? Because no, these, I mean, these things are, I mean, you know, in the way that the, the, that this, the administrative uh, proceedings happen, the FCC comes up with a proposal in which it opens up to comment and, and comments are open to any, any member of the public in addition to the, the industries uh, that are affected. And these are, the, these are the times in which there's been this huge public outpouring, right, the, the millions of comments around net neutrality. And so the FCC simply just hasn't opened that door. No. And I think they haven't opened that door because they know what will happen <laughs> when they open it back up. Well, I mean, in, 
In 2002, when the proceeding was going on, um, the FCC was literally taking public comments, bundling them gr into groups of 500, putting a rubber band around it and sticking them, stamping the data on them and sticking them in a box. And they didn't do any sort of analysis of what those looked like. When net neutrality came around, they couldn't get away with that because the court had already slapped them down on that point in the Prometheus proceedings, that it was that important that they consider citizen involvement. I mean, what the FCC is essentially supposed to do is regulate media industries so that you and I and other citizens have access to information. That's the intent. And what citizens were saying in 2003 and what they were saying in net neutrality proceeding is that their comments say, we want this regulation to protect our access to information. That's a hard, hard thing for the FCC to ignore. Mm -hmm. And having already lost one battle on this, I know Janikowski's FCC, or I mean, not Janikowski's, Wheeler's FCC, knew that they couldn't ignore those 4 million comments in mm -hmm. the record. Mm -hmm. And that's the only reason. That and those protesters that were out in front of his house. <laughs> right. One of my favorite videos of all time, actually, is seeing those people standing on his sidewalk. He was just so uncomfortable dealing with them. <laughs> well, but, I think that's uh, a great place to wrap it up. It's not a great place to wrap it up for, I don't know, our democracy, but it's a great place to wrap up the conversation right now, Chris. Uh, we will check in with you. Um, we, if anything happens, and maybe if nothing happens, we will still check in with you later in the year to see uh, where things stand with regard to to our media, to our media environment, and and the diversity that we we wish we had, um, and and unfortunately it, it, we don't have, especially in, in commercial media. So. Um, uh, Chris Terry, uh, is there any way anyone? I mean, you say you've write you, you've written a lot bunch of things in this. Is there some place that you publish this all, or or do you, do you have a website or something where people can see some of of your research? Just have people look up my dissertation. <laughs> can you can you send us a link and we'll put it at the show notes? I I would be happy to do. Yeah, that. that would be great. So uh, just go to our show notes at uh, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Tech nerdy, so. <laughs> well, if they've gotten to this part of the interview, they, they won't mind so much. They are ready, and and look, you know, it's a, it's great to educate yourself and to learn. It's it's not that actually that hard to learn this stuff. It, it we, we should not uh, frighten people that it's obscure. It's all it's all quite straightforward, and, and I'm certain you know if folks just read your introduction and your conclusion, they'll get pretty far along actually. So um, we thank you well, again. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, appreciate Always it. A pleasure. Look forward to talking to you later in the year. I hope I've got better news next time we talk, but uh, who knows? Too. All right, cheers. Great. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to hear about the world of college radio with our college radio watch correspondent, Jennifer Waits. Jennifer, welcome to welcome to Radio Survivor. Hey, thanks. You have a radio station tour to tell us about, and it's number 101. It's uh, it's Catholic University of America. Catholic University of America, and their station yes. WCUA. Yes, which stands for Catholic University of America. So it's an easy one to remember, and it was one of the stations I visited on my whirlwind East Coast tour in February. So yeah, um, WCUA is an online station at Catholic University, um, but but it's interesting. There's actually a very long radio legacy, and the first station there was in the 1920s. Um, 
And in a lot of ways, it kind of parallels the experience at my undergraduate radio station at Haverford College, which had a terrestrial station in the 20s. And then after that, always had campus only or online only stations. So that's the case at Catholic University as well, where they had an AM station in the 20s for a brief period of time. And then in the 1940s, students started at these campus only dorm room stations, um, which ebbed and flowed over the years. And that those are the ancestors of the current online station WCUA. Yeah, I was really touched reading your write-up of the, the station tour of WCUA because um, it's very scrappy. They're, it is very scrappy. They're really, they're really um, uh, pugnacious. It seems like you know, there's, they're, they're down in a, in sharing a space with the, with the percussion instruments. With the, yeah, and uh, I know, yeah, and really um, getting an online station on the air with uh, just sev- just a few dozen DJ volunteers. Yeah, I think it's around thirty-five. Um, yeah, around thirty-five students were involved. Uh, last semester when I visited this most recent semester and the station had had sort of gone off the air by January 2015 and the current station manager Joe D'Antonio he revived the station in November 2015 so I was there you know just a few months after he had revived the station brought it back from the dead and he was pretty excited that after just one meeting, they already had a bunch of eager volunteers. And then, you know, the word spreads, people tell their roommates. Yeah. Um, so they ended up with 35, 35 students involved pretty quickly, which is great. Um, I'm, cu- and- I'm curious, did you talk to the station manager, Joe, about why he undertook such an endeavor? Like what what inspired him to to take a station that, that uh, let's say, last year nobody cared about and to to care about it so much, to get it back together. Well, he's, he's really into radio, and his dad was a college radio DJ too, um, and he talked about his love for terrestrial radio, um, which is always interesting. You know, there's so much is said about young people not being interested in AM or FM radio, but he talked about how everyone at the station would like to have a terrestrial signal. So, you know, he's passionate about radio. He's passionate about music. And, you know, there was a station that was functioning, I think, when he first arrived on campus. So he just wanted to get it back going. And he's really concerned about the future of the station, too. He said that it's hard. And this is really common. Like so many things at WCUA um, are representative of college radio in general, that the institutional, there's often not much institutional memory. So people graduate and instructions for how to operate the equipment disappear, or there might be sort of homegrown equipment or systems or computer programs. And when people leave, nobody knows how to run them or take right. care of them. Yeah, I was really touched by that That in your write-up as well. There's a really decades of history um just under the surface that 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 is waiting for somebody to do the research to really uh do that work to uncover uh what's clearly a very fascinating but 
but hidden history. Like you, you, you linked to a, a photograph um, of, from the very early 80s of the radio station, and it was uh, posted on their Facebook page just with a big old question mark. Like, does anyone, can anyone tell us more about, about this time at this station? Uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like it was a very, very thriving station during that time. And on there's an alumni Facebook page for Catholic University, and they had posted a photo from the radio station, and there were tons of comments on it. So a lot of people had passionate memories about working at the station over the years. And and actually, when when Joe posted my article on the WCUA Facebook page, a number of alums chimed in and offered to help and, and provide stories or details about technical things. So, so it's great. Yeah. It's, it's not only the history, but also kind of the knowledge of how do things work. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's not just an academic question. It really is a practical question. Yeah. And so he's hoping to really put together manuals and, materials so that people can walk into the station and know how to turn it back on. Cause I think that was the problem too. Maybe when he was, he and others were working to revive it last fall, it might've been challenging for them to figure out, you know, how do we turn the station back on? Wow. You know, it's, it sounds so simple, but um, when you don't have the same people there around the clock, it, it becomes really complicated and, and people don't, you know, might not necessarily know how the equipment works. So um, it's good that he's thinking to the future like that. And, and he said that right now he's really focusing on the basics of the station. You know, he's got big dreams, but he is imagining that a lot of those will have to wait a bit, maybe until after he graduates. So um, like right now they're, they're playing digital music. They don't really have the ability or things aren't connected in such a way that they can play vinyl or cassettes or CDs, but he knows there's probably a way. And I think he hopes that that will get figured out eventually. But when you're just trying to get the station running and off the ground, those are kind of extras at the moment. Yeah. I can't help, but, but compare and contrast this uh, radio station tour number 101 with the station tour that you wrote up immediately previous to station 100 it really seems to be a remarkable uh, comparison where the that radio station at princeton that you wrote about for your 100th radio station tour um one what strikes me is how um well preserved the history of that station has been you know uh one the focus of your write up was the uh was the exhibit that that yeah. that that the college had had put together an exhibit of that station's history. Um, do you think there's a reason why one radio station's history is so well uh, regarded or at least um, documented and the other ones not? Um, I mean, I think it often takes a caretaker, somebody who's interested, you know, Mike at WPRB was interested in putting together an exhibit and was inspired to do that. Um, and, you know, and I'm not sure how materials were preserved up to that point. Um, you know, I think alums probably sent things in as well. You know, and I think there is quite a bit of history at, at WCUA right. in, in file cabinets. You there, know, there are was, existing file cabinets. And, you know, like, so the station is in a basement space of a music building 
And like you said, they share the room with the percussion department. So there are harps and various percussion and drums and various percussion instruments on one side. And then WCUA occupies the other side of the room. And it's, it was incredibly dim. Um, <laughs> and, and I guess the lights don't work. Um, <laughs> well, the lights don't really work over the station. So I kind of struggled. I usually don't like to use flash um, when I'm taking pictures. And I think I ended up taking a few flash photos because it was just so hard to see anything. God. And there were file cabinets towards the back of the space. And Joe pulled some things out to show me, including program guides. Um, and I mean, it was so nostalgic for me because it, there were materials from around the time that I was a college radio DJ at Haverford in the eighties. Um, so there are similar looking things like a pasted up, um, I don't know, not even a program guide, but a pasted up document, you know, that's kind of like ransom letters or, you know, where you've cut and pasted things onto a piece of paper and then you're about to photocopy it for everybody sort yeah. of zine like. Oh, so the, the original, the original glue stick. Yeah. Yeah, and there are things like that in the archives at Haverford too. So it that gave me kind of a warm and fuzzy feeling. Yep, that and then, zine feel. And then amid all of that, there were even election results, like where they had tallied the results for um, staff elections for you know like program director and general manager, etc. And when we were glancing through those, I recognized a name, um, like kind of an unusual name, and of somebody that I know who lives in San Francisco and used to be at KUSF at university of San Francisco and, um, Ted Dively. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh my God, that has to be the same. Like how many people have that name? That has to be the same person. Um, so I, I made sure to take photos of that and, and sent them to Ted, Ted Dively who confirmed that that was him. So it was kind of exciting and crazy to be at a college radio station and find something from the eighties, with the person's name on it, who I knew and, and to be like on the other coast, <laughs> you know, thousands of miles away. Um, so it kind of shows how small the college radio world is. Um, and so clearly they've saved a lot of things. I don't know how many stations save election results from right. the 1980s. Um, but all of that is great. And it really helps portray what a station culture was like at any given time. So I hope they hang on to everything and, and perhaps they will even work with the archivist at right. Catholic university to, to get this stuff in a more accessible place for researchers, college radio historians, etc. Yeah. I was just thinking that, that, uh, it remind you were, when you were talking about this, uh, the, 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 the great filing cabinets there at, the Catholic University of America that that uh, some of the advice that that you and Paul Rismandel have given out to college stations is to partner with uh, with their with other departments that can help preserve the history and and write about it so that um, so that the college community in the present and in the going forward in the future uh, can be aware of 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 why their station matters and what what's going on. Uh, down there in the basement. Oh yeah, it can be incredibly valuable, and it it's a great way to collect with alumni networks too. Right. Um, you know, because some alumni 
have really fond memories of their time at the college radio station. And that might bring them back to campus. It might encourage them to donate money to the school. So I, I think it's a really, yeah. it's a really good idea. Help, help keep that station on the air when, when Joe moves on. Exactly. Let's- and there's actually kind of a, um, kind of a nice history on the Wikipedia page. I have no idea who contributed to it. Um, but, and when I see that, when I see a history on a Wikipedia page, but nowhere else, I kind of wish that it would be somewhere else too, because we don't know, Right. it doesn't have all the documentation and the references. So it's, it's hard for somebody like me to write about it and quote from a Wikipedia page when I don't have all of the source material. Sure. So well, it'd be you, great if it was written somewhere with all the source material. If you had the free time, you can always reach out to the Wikipedia editor that contributed that information and uh, ask if they can identify themselves to you and help you find how they originally got the information. That's but, a good idea. But all of yeah. that takes time and work and effort. I know. I know. I'm, I always, I have to stop myself because I, I always try to get as much of a station's history as I possibly can, but I can't do a thorough job with every station. I just don't have the time or the resources. Yeah. Um, but, you know, all of this information is out there for people who are interested. Well, um, we thank you for devoting the, the multiple hours of time and resources that you do, that you do devote to the work because because no one else is doing it. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Sure. Thanks, Eric. Well, thank you to Jennifer for another great radio station tour. And of course, uh, you can see pictures and read Jennifer's write-up at radiosurvivor.com. Yeah. <laughs> we my, also have it in the um, in our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Yeah, my favorite picture is the uh, dimly lit uh, percussion uh, room that, that they share the space with. You kind of have to to see it <laughs> yes so we have visuals to go along with the descriptions there at radiosurvivor.com and uh if you have any comments please send them to us podcast at radiosurvivor.com anything else that's it we're done we're done we wrapped it up thank you so much for listening everybody and we'll see you next week thank you